Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm super excited about Dr. Bridget Toy Cronin joining me on the podcast today. She is a senior lecturer at Otago University where she teaches undergraduate programs in the legal systems as well as a paper on lawyers, clients and the profession. She currently researches issues pertaining to litigants and disputants, dispute resolution design and socio-legal methods for civil justice research. Bridget holds a Bachelor of Arts degree, Bachelor of Law's degree with honours from the University of Auckland, a Master of Law's degree from Harvard University, and she also has a doctorate, a PhD from the University of Otago. She served as a judge's clerk in the Wellington High Court, a legal advisor for the Cambodian Defenders Project on Women's Rights. She's practised commercial litigation both in Australia and New Zealand. Bridget is the director of the Civil Justice Centre and co-director of the Otago Centre for Law and Society. Finally, Bridget has had several of her studies and research papers published more recently. Some of them have been referred to by the New Zealand Rules Committee, that's the Court's Rules Committee, report titled Improving Access to Civil Justice that was just released uh, a few weeks ago. Hey, kia ora, good morning. Bridget, how are you? Kia ora, Chris. I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, look, thank you for joining me. I'm, as I said at the intro to this, I'm so excited about having you on board here because you really, truly are one of Australasia's leading minds on uh, the issue of access to justice and and, and the issues that surround um, what is becoming and, and has for some time quite a serious, uh, serious problem for, for both New Zealand and Australia, but I know your focus has been very much on New Zealand. So, look, first of all, what I wanted to ask you about is, you know, how do you define access to justice and why is it important <laughs> well that's a it's a big first question but um so the big ac- ones first <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, the, i mean there are a lot of definitions of access to justice um and i try and focus on uh thinking about people's access to um a decision or some sort of resolution it doesn't have to be an adjudicative decision, of course, uh, to their resolution to their justice problem that is in line with um, the substantive norms of our society. So, you know, it's it's it's, um, it's legal and that a fair procedure of some description has been used to get there. Uh, so it's people's access to that process, which is what I think about when I'm doing my work. That That's quite a, a multi-layered um, respond. Mm. I mean, I, I, I thoroughly agree with you, but I, I think it'd be helpful if we unpack it. Um, the, the, the first issue is this. Um, um, in any civilised society, it is inevitable that there are going to be members in that society that aren't going to see eye to eye with each other on issues. And, and, mm. and hence... Um, uh, they may go into a um, into a dispute. They may become disputants. Um, so where does where, where does justice fit into into that scenario where you have and they don't need to be two people. They could be two um, international corporations um, uh, uh, who don't see eye to eye here in New Zealand, or, or they could be two pe- neighbours who um, li- you know literally. Um, don't see eye to eye over the, the the size or the makeup of the offence. Where does 
where does that fit into our, our system of um, an organised society? Well, I mean, you're quite right. I totally agree that, um, you know, conflict is inevitable and uh, the challenge for the society is to make sure that people have got ways to work that out. And most people will work it out through a simple negotiation between themselves. You know, if neighbours are disputing, they'll often just work it out over the fence. Okay, um, so, so hence, hence, hence the issue of resolution. So so dispute yeah. resulting in, in resolution. Yeah, some kind of resolution that people are not... Um, I mean, one of some of the resolutions which are, are less in line with justice or fairness are um, resolutions where one person has to walk away from the situation or break the relationship to get out of it. So, for example, a landlord and tenant where the only way to sort of resolve the problem is for the tenant to leave the tenancy. Um, and, you know, even though perhaps their legal rights are on the side of the tenant that or an employee leaving a job where um, there's been conflict and they haven't been able to resolve it. So when people are taking those kind of actions, I think we've got to think, um, there's sometimes a problem that needs to be resolved there and we need to have mechanisms to allow people to air those disputes and to have a fair resolution to them. But that resolution can take lots of different forms, the mechanism yeah. to do it. Um, one of the problems with access to justice, certainly as it was maybe, say, 20 years ago, was that it was a lot focused on um, lawyers and judges and courts, and it's definitely moved away from that. I think when you speak to most people about access to justice now, they think of it in a much broader way than that, um, and they think about how people can find resolutions to their problems regardless of the nature of the dispute and the level of which they might need help. Okay, and and also just for for listeners, I'm sure they'll have gathered um, very much the focus of uh, of your research and and, and this this podcast is on on civil disputes mm. and civil justice. Um, yeah. We're not really going to touch on the area of of the criminal justice system. Yeah, no, I'm uh, very much focused on civil justice. So yeah, when yeah. I'm thinking about access to justice in this conversation, I'm definitely thinking about civil justice. Okay, um, now. Look, can we talk now just in terms of uh, we've talked about dis- disputes. Where does where, where does the system of justice um, engage? Because you, you've mentioned before, rightly, um, in essence, two possible outcomes to the resolution of a dispute. You've you've talked about one by agreement. You know, two neighbours sort out an issue over their fence by agreement. They don't need to get anyone else involved. The the second. Uh, of the three ways um, that disputes are resolved is, is you've mentioned people just walking away and you gave the example of, of a tenant who might have a claim against a landlord just simply goes, look, it's not worth pursuing. Uh, I'm I'm just going to walk away from this claim. That in itself is, a, is potentially a resolution. Um, now, there's a, there's a third way, um, uh, which is which is where where, a, where the system of justice might engage. How does how does that work here in New Zealand? So, I mean, the system of justice can engage in lots of ways. Um, some of it can be by, by providing information to people so that they know what their legal rights are, which empowers them to then find a just resolution by negotiation. So you can have it at that level, can be quite a kind of minor um, provision of legal information, which would be enough. Or it can be um, a, a more formal um, resolution. So with a landlord-tenant example, we have the Tenancy Tribunal in New Zealand, which its first step 
for almost all disputes is a telephone mediation, followed by, if that's unsuccessful, a tribunal adjudicated hearing. So there's kind of, um, you know, a bunch of different mechanisms sitting in there that are all provided by the justice system and supported by non-government as well in the provision of legal information. Okay. Now, can I ask you these questions? I want to ask you now uh, about why... Um, dispute resolution and access to justice is important, but can we can we start off at the at the individual level, and that is in in your experience with your research, um, what, what, why would you say that a, a, an effective system of dispute resolution and access to justice is important at an individual level? Well, at an individual level, there's plenty of evidence to show that um, unresolved disputes have have serious consequences for people's well-being. Uh, it can be their economic well-being. Uh, for example, um, you know, if you have a an unresolved tenancy claim, if we're going to keep using that as the example, to keep things clear, uh, having to walk away from a tenancy to resolve that problem creates a lot of cost for the tenant and some cost for the landlord as well, but a lot of cost for the tenant in the form of having to uh, move their property, um, you know, the, the costs involved with that and securing a new property. So there's that kind of cost. That, of course, also comes with a lot of stress um, and it can have spillover and create a lot of other civil justice problems. So other researchers have shown how uh, you have a kind of accumulation of civil justice problems often. So people, you know, have an employment problem, they lose their job, they can't pay their rent, so they lose their tenancy. That creates a family problem. Um, they, there might be a care of children issue and you have this kind of spiralling effect from civil justice problems. So at that level, having having unresolved problems is um, a big problem for well-being and I guess it can also create a sense of uh, unfairness for that person or exclusion from society as if their their rights are not being upheld and that can be a bad thing for um, people's connection to the community and for feeling like they're valued members of society. So there's a lot of kind of personal effects from having unresolved civil justice issues. Um, well, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, I might jump in with um, sort of my experience as a as a practitioner, uh, as a dispute resolution litigation lawyer, um, doing this mm. for over a quarter of a century now. Um, I mean, I, I like to think that I'm actually pretty good at what I do in helping people um, get through disputes. And I've been told by others that that, that, that I'm okay at what I do, um, or even, you know, pretty good. Um, but look, I, I've never had a client ever say to me, and, and, and maybe I'll ask you whether you've you've come across anyone who's ever indicated to you that they enjoyed the process of resolving a dispute and they're looking forward to being in the next dispute. In fact, in my experience, it's <laughs> yep. a complete opposite. Um, often people will say to me that, you know, perhaps um, uh, next to, you know, the, the loss of a, a dead loved one, it, it was actually one of the more traumatic experiences in their life and actually actually change them, um, sometimes not necessarily in a good way. Um, so, you know, has that been your experience in your research when talking to people who've been in disputes that, that the process itself of, of reaching a resolution can be traumatic? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I've never had anyone say, you know, that was fantastic, let's do it again yeah. uh, in a litigation sense. And certainly um, my PhD research was on litigants in person and I was um, closely following around basically 10 litigants in person and talking to others. And, uh, you know, that, that experience for them was a major life event, a big stressful event in their lives. And that has also been my um, experience with clients when I was practicing as a litigator it's it's very unpleasant it's very stressful uh, I guess that the thing to remember as we discussed at the outset is that some level of conflict can happen and conflict in itself is stressful so we need dispute resolution processes that don't um, increase that stress but there's also a, a certain level of I guess acceptance that conflict will arise and so it's about designing systems which don't um, don't make that worse and try and create resolution quickly and inexpensively so that, you know, financial stress doesn't uh, impede as well. Um, all those kinds of things. But we're not necessarily always going to be able to avoid conflict. It's not uh, it's something we can minimise, but we can't cut it out completely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, look, you, look, you're 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 absolutely right. Now, you you talked before uh, about the impact for individuals and the you know the connection to the community, but I mean, not only is there that individual impact to their well being, but that can affect the relationships that they have with their their partner, spouse, their children, their workmates, you know, the the, the community. So, so more than one person who's directly a party in, in the dispute can be affected by the consequences or the existence of the dispute. Has that been your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our legal system's very much focused on individual liability and, you know, having the, the, the named plaintiff and the named defendant, but that does tend to mask the, the fact that there are a lot more people usually involved in every dispute. I mean, if you return again to tenancy, there'll be other people living in that house who are not the named tenant, they'll all be involved. If that family then needs to move, it's going to impact potentially on, you know, who's whose living room they end up staying with, uh, end up staying in, that kind of thing. There's There are lots of spillovers in the sense of the economics of a dispute and other people who are, who are brought in, um, you know, regardless really of the nature of it, that's pretty true of most disputes. I mean, do you think it might be fair to be able to like maybe draw an analogy between, say, you know, someone who's 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 got a dispute and and the effect on them, um, versus perhaps say maybe a medical situation, you know, broken their leg, they can't get back to work, you know, and 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 the obligation on both the legal profession, um, the our, our system of justice to be able to assist people to get their lives back or, you know, get them back to where they, they need to be to be able to, to to get on, function, improve their well-being. Is there, yeah. Yeah, there is a well-being issue I here, think there, there is a good analogy there and um, it's kind of interesting because the, the OECD has recently been promulgating this idea of what they've, they're calling people-centred justice mm. uh, as a kind of way to rethink access to justice to um, bring the focus back onto the people who are affected and they've done that by analogy to the medical profession who have a much longer and stronger history than the legal profession and in, in thinking through these issues and we're probably all 
more familiar with the idea of patient-centered treatment or patient, and that involves families and thinking about the person as a whole person and thinking about what they need rather than thinking about them as a medical problem. And I think that the legal profession has a ways to go before we can recenter how we think about cases, um, how we teach law law as well to think about the people who are at the centre of a dispute and and really beginning with what they need and um, the people they're connected to. So not thinking about them just in the sense of an individual. And um, I I would add that the uh, movement towards tikanga Māori in in the New Zealand legal system helps this because, of course, the Māori, te ao Māori view of people is thinking of them as connected to communities, not as individuals. And so I have some optimism that that will help us as a profession refocus how we think about people who are caught up in disputes. Yeah. Okay. Look, there, there might be something we might dive into a little, a little bit later in, in this this episode. Uh, but the reason why I say that is, um, I'm, I'm very interested in the in the work of the, um, the 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 legal design lab coming out of our Stanford University in the United States, who, who very much are advocating a human centered focus to designing legal systems, so that you know it, it doesn't become this artificiality that we we we, we have under our current system, which all most um, cuts the people, like the actual parties, to a degree out of the, 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 the equation in terms of how resolutions are reached. But, but let's come back to that later. I, I, I now want to, um, now, I, I don't know whether it's drilling up or drilling down. We talked about the impact of disputes on individuals. In, in terms of um, the impact of unresolved disputes on a, on a society at a, at a wider level, let's just say here in New Zealand, um, what are the what are the issues that flow out of that? Um, you know, how, how, why is it that we need a legal system here in New Zealand beyond um, helping individuals resolve disputes? Yeah, well, so the the, the main argument goes that um, if you can't offer people dispute resolution and you don't have a formal mechanism to make sure that disputes are resolved in line with your law, then you don't have rule of law because one of the essential elements of rule of law is that you don't have law just written on a piece of paper that you have to be able to enforce and action that law. Okay, and, so, and, this, and, and we are really talking about the alternative to not having an effective system of justice, aren't we? In what sense? Sorry. Well, well, when, for example, when people take sort of, let's just say, self-help remedies, yeah. and that is that they go, all right, look, I, I've been wronged. I'm, I'm owed owed some money. Let's just say I'm um, owed, you know, ten thousand dollars. And I've been to my community law centre. I've spoken to a lawyer. I've just spoken to my cousin about the cost and what's involved, and um, not just cost, but the process of of trying to get that money. Um, hmm. It's just better that I go down the road and talk to my local gang member and say, "Hey, can you go and get this money for me?" and leave it to them. I mean, that's a, an example of the alternative, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's always the kind of um, the fear or the opposite or the rub side of not having rule of law is that you have rule of the jungle and that you have that kind of um, vigilante justice. Um, I mean, I guess the more common effect is that people walk away from things uh, and that has, as we've discussed as well, its own problems that come with it, even if you don't go as far as that kind of vigilante style of justice. But yes, certainly that's why we have as a founding kind of principle rule of law. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, it's moving away from the rule of the mob and and, and also just the, the rule of the powerful um, <laughs> a, as such. Um, look, uh, <laughs> I'm certainly keen to get into a uh, an episode on the rule of law itself. I've um, <laughs> I have reached out uh, to to the honourable Christopher Finlayson KC. I understand he might be writing a book on the topic, so hopefully yeah, we can I've get him. That yeah. <laughs> hopefully <laughs> we can get him get him to join us and and tell us about the rule of law. Uh, now let's. Uh, dive a little bit deeper. Um, so uh, we've talked a bit about why it is that uh, access to justice is important um, and why it exists, etc. What are the obstacles? And I know this is a really open question um, and maybe we'll break it break down part of your answer, but what, what do you see are the obstacles to access to justice in New Zealand at the moment? Um, so, the, the, I mean, there's been a fair amount of research into um, what's often referred to as the barriers to access to justice, and um, they break down normally in the form of cost, as money is always important. If you have to pay, the, the major fee is usually in the form of a lawyer. Um, if you need legal assistance, either representation or advice is very expensive. Um, but there's also opportunity costs in terms of lost productivity and focus on the rest of your life. Um, if you're pursuing litigation, as I'm sure you know from your clients, it can become very all-consuming and uh, means that other opportunities are missed out on. And for businesses, that can be very important as well because it takes the focus off running the business. Uh, so there's those sorts of things. The um, There's quite a lot of research to suggest that psychological stress and fear of engaging with um, formal dispute resolution systems stop people as well. It's quite a big step to go and actually sue someone, even in informal uh, forums like our disputes tribunal. Our disputes tribunal is still housed within, um, well, for example, in Hamilton, it's inside the high court. Uh, so it doesn't feel very informal. It feels pretty intimidating. And that, you know, if suing someone uh, is a, a, a big um, piece of damage to a relationship. And often disputes are with people who ha- you are going to have to have an ongoing relationship because uh, it's your neighbour or it's your ex-partner who you have children with or, um, you know, someone within your social circle. So that that can be a big problem for people um, engaging in that. There's also, I mean, this is a bigger problem in Australia, but it's still pre- present in New Zealand as geographical barriers. Yeah. Um, people not being able to access it. You know, it's just, it's too difficult to travel. As I'm sure you'll know, even, um, you know, people trying to park outside the courthouse or travel to a location. These are all things which you might need childcare for. You might need money to be able to pay for parking. It can just be too much hassle. Um, And then I guess at the, you know, if, if you think about it rather than just in terms of barriers and think about it in terms of, you know, the people-centred justice or the, you know, flip it around and think about, well, what do people want from dispute resolution? It might be that, you know, they don't want someone to adjudicate or they might want someone to adjudicate, but our court system has all these kind of steps before you get there. So it might not be kind of delivering what they're expecting from it. Um, And all those things can play in, in, in a different mix for each person into feeling like the formal legal system uh, even at its informal end, is not something they want to be involved with. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, look, let's break some of this down. Um, we'll come to financial at mm-hmm. the end. Um, let's um, uh, deal first of all with geographical. Okay. And, and look, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, you live in Hamilton. Um, Hamilton's infrastructure hasn't collapsed fully yet. Uh, Auckland's collapsed a long time ago. Um, uh, literally, uh, if I've got a court appearance on the North Shore um, at 10 o'clock, uh, I am literally thinking about planning departure at, at, at about 8 o'clock in the morning um, to travel what um, should theoretically only be about a 15-minute drive, um, simply because the infrastructure um, in Auckland's horrific. Um, your point about Australia is well made. Some people have to travel great distances. Um, but we, you know, w- one of the things, I guess one of the, the benefits, if there was a benefit out of the, the pandemic, has been mm. the legal profession's, um, uh, I guess, um, discovery that we have enabling legislation such as um, the Courts Remote Participation Act. It's been in place for 12 years now. Um, yeah. That actually exists. And that the technology has been around even longer since that piece of legislation, um, where you can do online appearances. Um, and do you, I, I know that you're one of the co-authors of a, of a paper that's that's looked at the use of online courts. What 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 were some of your findings and experiences out of out of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, online technology and remote technology has um, great potential to deliver. Um, to deliver justice for people. I guess I'm more of a fan of it in the procedural steps. Um, I still think that there is a place for bringing people together to actually sort out substantive disputes, but I couldn't agree more that we waste a heck of a lot of time uh, turning up for, you know, short appearances and things in court, um, which also creates uh, expectation on the part of litigants who have seen, you know, Judge Judy that things are going to be resolved right there and then, and then you have these kind of callovers and everything gets um, dragged out in their eyes at least. So I think that um, online courts can be very, or online procedures and mechanisms can be really helpful. When we talk about online courts, we can mean all sorts of different things. Um, Most people kind of think of it as a video recreation of a full hearing. Like a a virtual online hearing. A virtual court, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is one aspect of it. A lot of my research is focused more on the kind of how do we get people filing online? How do we get people explaining their disputes online to try and um, streamline our courts because as you know we still have the system in New Zealand where we literally have documents on trolleys being wheeled around in courts and you know that's a that that is well past its due by date so oh, look, you're preaching to the converted after the after this podcast episode I, I, I've got to go to the high court to file mm. a, a criminal appeal uh, and they yeah. just won't accept it electronically they literally I've yeah. just got to I've got yeah. to hand over the document across the counter and um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy in 2022 and the courts know it's crazy. We all know it's crazy, but moving the machine, it's a big machine and it's pretty difficult to do. Um, and as you know, the, the courts have recently released a paper talking about their digital strategy and trying to, to get this moving. Uh, we're pretty late to the party. Um, 
But, you know, once we're in a party, New Zealand can tend to move quite quickly. And I think they uh, there's been some big IT projects that went off the rails in the past and there's fear about that happening again. But I think we've got to the point now where we've got no choice but to join some of the international trends um, and move to more of a digital strategy for our courts. And I think that will be really beneficial for, you know, saving People like your time, like walking up to the courts, just insane, and handing over documents. It's, it costs clients, and it's um, it's really something we can't defend. Oh, look, you're right, and it it, it also has a has a place for the clients themselves. Um, uh, you know, one of the the big costs, not just financial, but just in terms of emotional and and distraction, is um, is is having to. To, to appear now, I know in the civil jurisdiction, they're not so much so, but certainly in criminal, just that constant appearances, uh, particularly for minor offences, um, can often lead some people to go, "Look, it's just easier for me to plead guilty." You know, um, I didn't do it, but um, it, the it, the process is far more punishing than what the outcome will be. Anyway, look, and sort of jumping just a, a little bit ahead, in terms of designing IT. Projects surely um, we wouldn't need to 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 invent a new wheel. There will be other jurisdictions that have embraced this and, and uh, have proven models that we could look at replicating. I mean, have you have you had an opportunity to look at uh, beyond our great shores? Yes, yeah. yes, I sure have. Um, I mean, I think that that's what the, our courts are proposing is to buy a, a system which um, is already being tried and tested somewhere else. And that is the advantage of coming slightly later to a party. But of course, you still then have to adapt it for your own requirements. And um, I think the timelines that were proposed on the draft uh, digital strategy are probably fairly unrealistic that they've yeah. got at the moment. I think it's going to take longer than we expect, even if you buy something off the shelf and adapt it for your needs. It, it takes time. We know that from having done IT projects in the past. I mean, the big international model that's held out as um, the gold standard is the British Columbia Dispute Resolution Tribunal. Yeah. And that's a great model because it was designed kind of from the ground up. It started small, it got bigger, uh, and they've expanded out and they've user tested and they've, you know, used all those methods like um, you were referring to the Stanford Design Lab. Uh, you know, th th that's very much in that mode of, of design. I don't think that that's what's proposed in New Zealand for this. This is really about getting away from, we're still running CMS, our mainframe system, mm. and it needs to then be <laughs> replicated in a more modern system, um, which is a different kind of project than building uh, a tribunal from the ground up. But that's certainly, you know, a model that we could look towards in a different kind of project, and it has a lot of lessons to offer us um, and could be potentially trialled in our disputes tribunal. But that's a... Uh, is a slightly different thing from getting our high court and our district court into a more online, um, streamlined process. Okay. Oh, well, well, look, perhaps I could just, uh, I mean, it doesn't need to be super complicated. And I mean, I'll give you um, maybe a, just a, a little example, just an experience that I had last year. Uh, I was involved as counsel in a, in a six-week um, uh, ACCC, um, this um, hearing, prosecution, um, where there was... Six counsel, at times there's a bit more. Um, there was obviously a judge, um, there's a registrar. There were, there, there were over 50 witnesses and it, it took place for, for six weeks. Now, the whole hearing 
uh, was conducted uh, remotely, the only person in the courtroom was the judge. Um, there wasn't anyone else in the courtroom. Everyone else attended uh, under two platforms, one by Zoom. I mean, your listeners won't can't, can't see, but we're, we're participating via Zoom. And I think most people um, listening will have had the experience of using Zoom. And that was the platform for the audio visual. For, for documentation, and there was a lot of documentation. Um, uh, it was just a different platform. It was a platform called BlueJeans. Some people will be familiar with it. It's sort of, it's like Microsoft Teams and Zoom. It's a similar concept. And that trial for six weeks went absolutely smoothly. It just went through, each witness came on, they came off, moved on, etc. Any um, procedural matters were dealt with by counsel, sort of in a virtual set of chambers, uh, etc. So, you know, that is an example that in Australia, at least, um, the federal court is embracing the use of standard off-the-shelf software to be able mm. to deliver um, or undertake hearings and then deliver justice at, at, at some of its its highest level. I mean, this was one of the largest prosecutions the ACCC have brought. So it shouldn't be an impediment. Is there a risk that the people who are making decisions um, aren't getting the benefit, necessarily aren't being joined by those that would have the knowledge and experience to say, this can be done. And look, the reason why I say that is, um, and I'm not going to single any particular judges out that might be on the rules committee. I, I certainly won't do that. It could be career limiting. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll, I'll point out a, a senior barrister. I do know of one senior barrister who, who doesn't even have a computer on his desk. And he's never had a computer on his desk. So to, so to suggest to him, um, hey, let's have a, a a virtual hearing would probably be quite an alien concept. I mean, is there a risk that the people who are making decisions aren't necessarily being supported by the people that could give them the insights that this can be done? Um, I'm not sure that that is the case. I think there is a willingness to um, use technology and to embrace it. And I think, as you said, like the pandemic should be forced the hand. I, I think, mm. if, but for the pandemic, we'd be a lot further back because people wouldn't have been forced to engage with it and seen that it can work. But um, like everything in the justice system, it's complicated, right? Yeah. So a, a hearing that works really well with counsel um, where you've got everyone kind of on the same level playing field and you're all engaging with this technology in the same way can work really well, but it doesn't mean that it translates to all types of hearings for all types of issues. And I'm not an expert on this particular area, but I know that the Boren Foundation have... Um, brought Professor Linda Mulcahy to New Zealand. She's here this week. She's an expert in courthouse design, including looking at virtual courts. And some of the very complicated issues that arise with having um, litigants in person on in virtual courts, having different types of hearings in courts, the way you set up cameras. Um, there's also been some really great work out of Australia. David Tate, Meredith Rosner have done work on... Um, there's, there's a lot of hidden kind of devil in the detail with um, virtual hearings. So I think the courts are right to be cautious about jumping in and just saying, this is great, let's do it this way, because it does come with some hidden problems as well. Um, I mean, yeah, there's always some conservative people. The Luddites of the profession will, will be around as well. But certainly in my interaction 
um, which I have quite a lot of with both the bench and the ministry. I think there is a keenness. There's just a um, caution as well, and I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure the caution is misplaced myself. Uh, so, I. I think we need to be pressing on, but we should press on with all the evidence available. And um, I, th- I think that the evidence is getting before the people who are making decisions. Mm. Yeah, no, look, look, good, good comment. I uh, completely agree with you. I mean, for reasons that are, that I just uh, are beyond me, I don't understand. We're almost going through a sort of retrograde scenario where now that the the pandemic protocols in the courts have have now come to an end, the the, the Ministry of Justice have now said, oh well, there's to be no more electronic fire unless you make an application and you get granted leave to do that. Yeah. Why we now start going backwards is beyond me. But, but look, let, let's, let's move on. Um, uh, next area um, in terms of barriers that I wanted to talk about is, 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 is the information area. And that is, well, actually, so before we do, maybe, maybe this is a good segue to go into it, is, is going back to, to, to sort of the, the online dispute resolution via, you know, online means. That does create a digital divide issue though, doesn't it? Because not everyone in our in our communities and societies has access to the internet or reliable access to it. So that that is a problem that will need to be overcome. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I published with my colleague, Dr. Kayla Stewart, a couple of weeks ago, a report called Expressed Legal Need in Aotearoa, where we were looking through the lens of um, Citizens Advice Bureau data at what people need to resolve disputes. And in that report, we did discuss uh, the fact that, you know, there is a digital divide. Mm. And we have to be very clear when we are designing things for people, justice systems, that you can't substitute the digital and have no in-person or additional support. It won't work because it will cut a bunch of people out. And that's not just people who don't have the internet, because lots of people in New Zealand have the internet, but you need a lot of different skills and confidence to be able to engage with an online court or an online disputing process um, to be able to use that effectively. So, for example, um, my mum needed to make a complaint to the police because her car was damaged by some vandals. And she called them and they said, oh, fill out our online thing, you know, our Mm -hmm. form where you can record it. Now, she's got the internet. She spends a whole lot of time on Facebook. Um, She uses the internet and her phone quite a lot. But she came over to my house so I could fill it out for her while she sat next to me. Um, and told me the details because she didn't have the confidence to engage with the formal system, that feeling of engaging with authority and saying something that you couldn't take back without support from someone else who happens to be you know, a legal professional. So that's handy for her. So basically we need to have a system where, I mean, and I think that we inevitably have to move to online systems because it just doesn't make sense to stay with paper. But you do need then a service like community law or citizens advice, people yeah. who are sitting there who can then sit with that person and say, great, well, you tell me about your dispute and I'm going to type it into this computer for you and we'll check it through together and um, then we'll, we'll submit it. So they've got that person helping them. Now, some people like you and I, we'll be able to do that in our office ourselves. 
and we'll be able to help some of our friends do it. But other people who don't have mates who are in the legal profession or who have high confidence with these sorts of things will need a service provided to do that. So I um, strongly advocate that we go digital, but we have to have an in-person service that delivers um, access for everybody. And it's not just digital, it's also literacy. We have yeah. you know, a large number of people in our society who are either not literate or who have neurodiversity. There's lots of reasons why you might not be able to engage with one of these systems. And you, you can't have a system where people feel inadequate because they can't do it themselves that's not that's not okay look look you're absolutely right and good point made about the community law um i mean if we're going to have a system of justice that requires access to digital resources we've got to make those digital resources accessible to people and 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 if it's even if it's through community law having computers there and someone who can show them how to this is how you connect to your Mm. online hearing and away you go. I mean, obviously, with New Zealand, uh, we, we still don't have internet coverage throughout the country. I mean, I know the rural community really struggles, so so there's some infrastructure investment that, that may over time need to be made. Let's now move on to, and we might be able to combine two together, that is the, what, what I call the information gap and, and the cultural issues, uh, both of which are, are barriers to access to justice. And I think in part, you we were talking before and you mentioned that for some people, or I took, it was a takeout that I, I took, was that they don't like being in disputes. It's not part of who they are. I mean, for me as a litigator, it's what I do as a job. I'm familiar with the courtroom. Um, it, you know, it's my place of work. It's what I've chosen to do. But but some people will 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 really run away from conflict and to be forced into um, uh, that system and then not have access to the information and it may not be part of their culture. Um, uh, are these barriers to, to to being able to provide efficient access to justice? Um. Well, they're either barriers or our system isn't designed to meet the needs of the people. It depends on how you look at it. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, I mean, it, it from for lots of people, uh, lots most people probably are conflict adverse. They don't like being in conflict, and it's hard for lawyers to remember sometimes because we're so used to it that. Um, you know, it's just what we've been trained to do and we've probably been attracted to the profession in the first place because we can tolerate it. Um, Is this about reminding doctors that not all patients like blood? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) maybe, (laughs) maybe. Yeah, Yeah. so, I mean, you have to, um, you either have to redesign, you have to have a system which meets people's needs where they are, but, of course, that might include if conflict is a reality and you can't run away away from it, it's providing the support people to help them move through that conflict. Now, that's what lawyers were invented for, right? I mean, that's what... Yeah, to guide, as a guide, to guide them through the process of, yeah. t- of yeah. the dispute towards resolution. Um, but going back to the point of, you know, is our system of justice designed that is in a way that... Um, well, well, I'll take another step back. Uh, there has been comment that our system of justice is very sort of UK-centric. Okay? It doesn't necessarily um, uh, equate for other members of, of our community and society who, who aren't so UK-centric-minded, um, and that can be a barrier to enable them to participate efficiently in the system. 
Yeah, well, absolutely, because I mean, it is completely drawn from um, England. We have our um, court set up in exactly the same way. Uh, I mean, we we have made quite a big move towards um, dispute, uh, well, what we sometimes call ADR, you know, alternative dispute resolution in New Zealand. So we do have a large number of schemes and mechanisms that encourage mediation, probably more so than other countries, I suspect. Like that is a big feature of our system. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'll use employment as an example. Um, uh, And and again, sort of forced upon um, what used to be the Department of Labor became MB, the Ministry of Everyone, just about, um, who have a a mediation service that is provided uh, free of charge to help resolve employment disputes. And and employment disputes can be some of the the most distressing disputes that that people get involved in. Um, And uh, efficient resolution means is really important. Now, um, traditionally... Uh, mediation was was face to face. You'd you get the parties in a room together, third party neutral. They'd all have exchanged their positions. Third party neutral may separate them and then engage in shuttle diplomacy. And boom, bingo, bam. Uh, there's a resolution that people can live with. May not be happy with it. Um, in fact, if it's an outcome that both of them hate, it's probably the right outcome. Um, but it's the it, it gives them an outcome and ability to move on. Now that was delivered in person. The the pandemic um, led the mediation service to do Zoom mediations by Zoom. And in my experience, at least in talking to colleagues, it, it's it's been a success. You know, people are able to still resolve their disputes without having to literally sit across the table from each other and eyeball themselves. So, you know, I do I do agree with you. There are some disputes that you that are more amenable to having people in person in in a room, but but we're talking at generalisation level. Um, online mediation can be super effective, and and I and I believe that the mediation service through MB has probably got the 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 busiest one of the busiest mediation services at all by mm. a long shot, uh, and and they seem to be able to deliver it online without too much difficulty. Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of schemes like that um, in New Zealand, and they do, to a large extent, operate very well. People, you know, have resolutions from them. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to paint a picture like we just have everyone going to the formal courts uh, because it's it's simply not true. Most people's interaction with the justice system will be um, in something like the ERA or uh, tenancy mediation or the disputes tribunal, perhaps, but they won't really walk in the door of a formal court. But if you do have to walk in the door of a formal court, you will certainly find a very English system before you. Okay. Well, look, um, let's now move on to the sort of the, the last, you know, barrier challenge to the uh, the access to justice problem or challenge. Um, and that is, that is money. Yeah. yeah. Show me the money. <laughs> let's talk about money. Um, yeah. What can you tell us about the cost of litigation and, and how that acts as a barrier to justice? Um, so the the main cost for litigation is if you need to employ a lawyer uh, to represent you, then you're going to quickly run up fees. And mm. that means that most most disputes, um, I think the some of the estimates that were given to the Rules Committee are probably from anything under 100,000 New Zealand dollars, it's probably not going to be worth litigating with a lawyer because um, the legal fees will outstrip any kind of uh, gain that you might get from winning the case. And of course, you've got your exposure to costs as well. So the maths doesn't make sense if you're in that under $100,000. 
Okay. Can, um, can we can we talk about civil yeah. legal aid? Um, <laughs> because when we're saying, you know, the, the cost, we do have a civil legal aid system that provides uh, funding for civil disputes. Um, but that but that funding isn't available to everyone. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Well, so the the threshold for legal aid is set somewhere around. Um, if, if you're not a beneficiary, you're probably unlikely to get civil legal aid. Oh, I can um, give you the exact numbers. You so, can. Well, yeah. yeah. So if you're a number of dependents, right? But, yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's just take a single person. So a single yeah. person in New Zealand with no dependents, uh, the threshold income threshold, taxable income threshold, is currently twenty three thousand. $820. There we go. Okay. And now yeah. um, if you break that down to an hourly rate for 40, working 40 hours a week, we're talking minimum wage, not even cost of living um, uh, yeah. sort of sort of rate. So um, that wouldn't that tell, tell us that um, a large number of people out there simply won't qualify for civil legal aid? Um but those that do qualify, it's it's not a it's not a it's not a gift. Like you don't get given the money no, to give to your lawyer. Yeah, it's a loan, and it's a loan. Yeah, yeah, and that loan can be secured over you know, and, and for many people, their most valuable asset that they might have is is their home. Um, mm-hmm. So that sort of sits there uh, with an expectation at some point it's going to be repaid. So, so it's not a free uh, ability to get a lawyer, is it? No, it's not. Um, And so for a lot of people who do qualify for legal aid, they won't take it for that reason. I've had, you know, research participants saying, you know, it was either a choice between keeping the house or keeping the kids to get civil legal aid to fight for the children. It's not worth it. You can't do it. You know, like that's a bad, bad choice to have to make. So people don't take it for that reason. I mean, the the government did reset the legal aid thresholds and, um, remove the interest off the loans recently or that comes in I think in the, the beginning of next year so there's been a slight adjustment but really um, it would need a lot more money to make it actually um, more effective and the other problem with civil legal aid is that even if you want to take the loan and you qualify you have to find a civil aid legal uh, civil aid registered lawyer uh, and that is a real challenge because um, we have far fewer than we used to a lot of people have pulled their names off the register and even those who are still on the register usually only do one or two cases a year so people tend to have the situation um, which I'm sure you get as well people calling around multiple lawyers trying to search for someone who will certify their case for legal aid and not being able to secure a lawyer. Oh, look, you're absolutely right. So um, <laughs> now you're getting into a topic that, uh, that, I, yeah. that I'm very passionate <laughs> about. Okay, so yeah. um, so something that, that has frustrated me, because just by way of background for listeners, uh, I'm an approved legal aid uh, provider, both civil and also criminal, PAL 1 and 2. Um, I won't get into the issues of PAL 3 yeah. and 4 that I've had with uh, legal services about that, but I, that's for another day. Um, let's just deal with the, the, the issue of being a provider since 1998, so I've been a provider for, for quite a while, um, is I regularly get telephone calls from people who are quite distressed saying, mm. you know, you are the 20th lawyer that I've rung and every single one I've rung has said that they just don't have capacity. And I then uh, spend a large part of that day, um, sometimes it might be half an hour, which, you know, if I'm, if I'm working five hours for the 
day because I need to have a life outside of work. Um, uh, half an hour occupies a reasonable chunk. Or I could spend three or four hours of that day trying to help these people find someone. Uh, that's assuming that I can't do it for them because there are some areas that, that I won't practice in um, or I'm conflicted or, or various other reasons. Um, and trying to find someone that can help them. Now, um, uh, it, it's not an easy process uh, and it's broken. Um, an idea that I came up with was um, creating an app, sort of like Tinder for clients and lawyers, where you could you could put in your details and and lawyers could swipe left or right to, as to legal aid lawyers whether they're able to to do that to just streamline that process. Um, it, it, it is it is a problem. Um, one of the other issues, and I mean you've raised this, is about um, lawyers not being involved and. In, Civil legal aid. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, if I've got an appeal, um, uh, or I need an instructing solicitor because I'm a I'm a barrister, but I, um, and uh, for some reason I, I need to have a, a I've decided that it, there should be a solicitor there. Um, uh, sometimes the rules require these things. Is uh, in Auckland there are only um, eight approved civil appeal legal aid providers who are solicitors in, in, in all of Auckland. I mean, it's mm. it, it's almost getting to the stage where it's just non-existent. Um, and, and that's a major problem as well. Look, one of the advantages, uh, and I guess this is why uh, a lot of lawyers have either, haven't ever gone to providing legal services un, under legal aid or they, they've taken their name off the list, is um, the issue of rates. Now, rates have increased a little bit. They haven't really kept with inflation. Uh, but, you know, I'm at the at the highest level. It's still 155, uh, inclusive of GST. Um, but you compare that to my ordinary commercial rate of 650, there's a, there, there's a, there's a $495 an hour differential in there. Um, and... Uh, some might say, well, Chris, your hourly rate's ridiculous, your commercial rate's ridiculously high, but um, it, it has to be at that level to be able to meet the costs of running a legal practice. I've got two senior legal um, senior uh, litigation secretaries who are amazing, but the rate to employ them at is significant. Um, I've got to cover insurance, I've got you know, um, all the costs of my chambers, et cetera. By the time you drill it all down, doing legal aid is a, is a loss leader um, and it's a significant loss leader. Um, I lose a, a large amount of money each year every time I do a legal aid instruction. So why would anyone do it? Um, well, um, I guess the answer is is that you you do it, well, one answer, well, my answer in part is as a service to the community, but but not every lawyer wants to do that. So 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 what 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 can we do? Maybe one solution is to actually look at well, what wh- why is it that um, uh, running a legal practice is so expensive? Um, and you know, can we design a system where legal aid lawyers or lawyers who are doing genuine pro bono, and I do, Bridget, I want to ask you about pro bono and your definition of that in a moment, but the lawyers who are doing these things at a cost where the cost can be reduced down, um, and maybe one area, I'll just mention insurance because it's a big cost for a lot of lawyers, 
is that um, you don't have to rely on your insurance so much when you're providing a service that's costing you money. Um, mm. Analogy, when I worked for a county attorney's office in New York back in the mid-90s, uh, I met a, a number of doctors who would go to South America and do 150 heart surgeries down there and then come back to, to the States to practice as a cardio, cardiologist because their insurance would be so much cheaper that they had, they'd be able to say to the insurer, I've done 150 open heart surgeries. Now, yeah, a few of them died, but you know, I couldn't get sued in those countries. But, but now my insurance level's down. Perhaps we need to look at um, unbundling legal services and unpacking them all so that lawyers aren't um, uh, necessarily having to cover these responsibilities and costs at the same level when they're providing a community service on a loss-leading basis. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot there. I've I've probably spoken too much. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the the short point, I guess, is that the model that we've got at the moment is not working because lawyers aren't signing up to it. And it's seems pretty unlikely that the government's going to pour more and more money into legal aid because it is a huge cost. <laughs> I mean, when you look at um, how much they put in this year's budget and how it really only flicks the rates up a little bit, um, it, it's just not really sustainable the way that it's set up. So then I think we need to look at other models, basically. Yeah, but, but isn't it a false economy? Because when you start getting litigants in person, isn't there just shifting the cost to the state from funding an effective legal aid system to then funding a judicial system that's that, that's placed under more pressure? I mean, you've got a, a judge who is, is, who, by the way, you know, judges in this country are paid, a, you know, a reasonable salary. It's not a, a small salary. It's significantly more than the average income in New Zealand. Um, but they're having to... Um, and, and in fact, I'll make this point, you know, there are many judges who are paid significantly more than what many lawyers in this country earn. Um, uh, for some lawyers, uh, being promoted as a judge is a, is a salary increase for them. Um, mm. Isn't it just pushing the, the, the resource that the state's providing fully paid for um, being a judge on, on to them to then manage litigants in person rather than having the state provide a lawyer who can manage the you know that litigant? Um, yes, to a certain extent, but I think the bigger cost that comes to the state when you don't have an effective legal aid system is actually in health um, and yeah. in other well-being services, Absolutely. because yeah. like yeah. what we talked at at the beginning yeah. is that unresolved civil justice problems have this kind of knock-on effect. So yes, if you zoom out and think, all right, you know, it's going to cost the state a huge amount of money if we don't have effective resolution. Um, therefore, we should put more money into legal aid. But the amount of money that would be needed to make legal aid work under the current system, I think, is unrealistic myself. Uh, so I think we need to be looking at different kind of levers to pull as opposed to just thinking, well, how can we crank up the rates to make them match commercial practice better? Look, look, I agree. Um, It's a multi-tasseted solution that's going to be required. Um, Let's stick with the topic of money, though, and Mm. and, and perhaps let's talk about our tax system and whether our tax system operates as a barrier to access to justice. And, uh, And I'll give you this example. Um, let's say that we've got um, an employee 
um, will say that their name is is Bob Smith. Just use a simple name, and and and, and Bob has been made redundant, and their employer has uh, withheld salary. And um, I, I won't mention holiday pay because they can go off to a, a labour inspector and get the holiday pay back. But they've withheld salary and a bonus that they're owed, and, and the amount to it is let's just say. It's um, at simple terms, it's ten thousand dollars. Okay, but that ten thousand dollars is is really important to Bob, and Bob goes, okay, well, I, well, I I need to go and recover that. So they go through the process of, of of recovering that money through the Employment Relations Authority, who awards them the money. Okay, uh, they they owed the money, uh, and then they go through the process of of debt recovery, all of which. They are funding a lawyer out of tax-paid money, but the employer who's defending this unsuccessfully is paying um, uh, out of money that they can claim a tax deduction on and get all the GST back. And then when Bob actually gets the 10 grand, the IRD says, thank you very much. We're now going to take, you know, if they're at the higher bracket, we're, we're going to take $3,900 off you, um, even though you're funded recovering that money out of tax money that you actually had already paid tax on. Um, mm. Now, you can contrast that to the employer who let's say um, uh, is, is in, a, in a service industry and, and they're owed money by a client, um, uh, $10,000. So they go to their lawyer and, and again, same scenario, it's a debt. They get the $10,000 back, but at least the lawyer that they've engaged, they've been able to claim the GST back and the, and the tax deduction. How can that possibly be fair when Bob Smith is actually paying for the uh, dispute resolution, you know, the, the court system and mm. their employer, who may not pay any tax at all, um, uh, isn't contributing at all, but because the tax advantages. Is, is that a fair system? Well, I think it's a good point because it's about really looking much more broadly at the kind of incentives that are sitting behind some of these disputes. And, you know, you'll see the same sorts of things going on in residential tenancy and things like that as well, where there are um, incent- different differing incentives for the different parties about whether to settle that dispute and who it costs in real terms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously that's not fair and we need to think um, a lot more broadly as a profession and, and to be able to put these kinds of points across to policymakers and say, you know, here's something where we could make an adjustment which will have a real effect. I think there's a tendency, though, for legal professionals to continue to say there's not enough money in legal aid, there's not enough money in legal aid, and that's not that might be true, but it's also not realistic to think that it's going to go up by such an extent that it's going to fix the system. So we need to be more creative is what my point would be, and yeah. I think what you've just posed is one of those kind of pieces of the puzzle that we need to put on the table and say Here, here's something you can change. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, you know, dealing with employment, but I, I'll talk about relationship property in a second. Um, the, the legal profession does compete with these employment advocates who um, are able to provide a service on a no win, no fee basis, you know, you know that, that contingency model. And they're unregulated and they're able to, to do that. Um, whereas the legal profession does have regulations that are in place. You're not allowed to charge a percentage 
Um, so you've, you, you're back to this archaic model of charging hourly rate, etc. Um, if, um, uh, for example, the, the, the legal profession was able to, um, I guess, modernise a little bit and actually get a bit more realistic in the provision of services, do you think there might be some scope to, to have more flexible charging models where lawyers can say, you don't have any money, but you've got a great claim. I'm willing to take this on and assist you, um, uh, but you know I need to be able to cover the risk that I'm not going to get paid, okay, and the fact that I'm funding this. Um, I mean, I should have mentioned there are litigation funders out there um, and they've been on the scene for quite a while. They're able mm-hmm. to charge a, a, a percentage, but um, you know, lawyers don't have the, in New Zealand um, that ability. I mean, it's, it, it's existed in the personal injury jurisdictions across many of our you know, common countries that we deal with, the United States, even in the great sunny state of New South Wales. Um, so do you think that, there sh- that, that part of the solution could sit in more flexible charging models? Yeah, I've certainly looked at this in the past and it is part of the the independent review of the legal profession which is going on at the moment and the report should be out soon um, is looking more broadly at some of these things and whether, you know, there are, there is room to create access to justice by thinking more creatively about how we charge clients so that we don't have to keep with this just hourly rate. Um, but that said, we have to be careful uh, I mean, I, part of my submission to that review was that employment um, employment advocates should be regulated. So I don't think we necessarily want to go the direction of their practice because there are some good reasons and some uh, consequences that can happen if you adopt some of these contingency type models. And that's why they are regulated out of our system. Uh, again, it's complicated, but yes, I would totally endorse the idea of thinking more creatively about how we charge clients and the transparency around how we cl- charge clients um, is a big problem. People getting surprise bills or inaccurate estimates, those kinds of things create real fear and anguish for clients and generate a lot of disputes um, and a lot of complaints to the law society. So we could definitely do better on billing. And yeah, there could be some room for regulatory change to support that. Yeah, well, look, one other regulatory um, area is there's an absolute um, prohibition on lawyers entering into a contingency arrangement in relationship property disputes. And I can't see what the underlying logic of that is because it's not uncommon. And the law reflects us that there will usually be one party to a relationship who has less financial means and, in fact, often will have no financial means at all to be able to fund a lawyer, uh, whereas the other party may. And that creates an inequality and an access to justice. But, look, that that's for the regulators to, to, to work their way through. Let's move on to the, the topic of pro bono. Um, now, you know, listeners out there will be familiar with, you know, hearing this concept of, of lawyers working pro bono. Well, what does pro, what's your definition of pro bono? Well, I don't have my own definition, but I did adopt for the purposes of some research an Australian mm. definition because I thought that was um, a, a good one. Uh, the the issue I've had when I was looking into pro bono in New Zealand was that the terms used very loosely um, to, so it, it really the intention behind it is that it's focused on delivering free legal services for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to access them. So, you know, ad- addressing 
all the issues we've been talking about with people being unable to um, access lawyers. And instead it's used very broadly to include kind of um, community days, uh, painting a house or something at a at a um, poorer community or something as being pro bono work or doing free legal work for the golf club or something like that. So it's not really addressed at um, the access to justice gap as such. So I have advocated for uh, the New Zealand Law Society to adopt a much clearer definition. Um, they do have a definition, but in their publications, they tend to use it a bit more loosely uh, because I think that's important for creating culture in the legal profession uh, about what counts as pro bono and what counts as just kind of advertising or pro bono washing. I don't know oh, <laughs> what no, the two yeah. might yeah. be. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned providing services to a golf club. I mean, uh, if you've got a a couple of partners of, of a large national firm who are providing legal services to a preeminent golf club uh, without expectation of direct money changing hands. Uh, let's just say it's to oppose a, a, a resource management application by a neighbour. Um, you, if one drills down to the motivations there, I mean, the motivations may be, okay, well, I'm providing a, a free service, but we're getting great marketing for our law firm. And uh, a lot of the members of that club uh, uh, engage us because of our association with that. So indirectly, we're getting paid. Um, is that pro bono? No, that's not not the definition of pro bono that um, I've certainly been using. And there is this, I mean, the, the thing with pro bono is that it impacts on the profession very differently depending on which part you're in. So mm. when there's been discussion about mandatory pro bono, um, you quite rightly get complaints from, say, you know, people who are doing work like you're doing or the criminal bar, defence bar, who are saying, look, we're already doing pro bono in the form of legal aid because it's so low, it's kind of got pro bono baked into it, or we already spend hours on the phone mm. helping clients find a legal aid lawyer that is pro bono. We shouldn't be expected to be doing kind of more of this work. And then you have the big national firms kind of using it as marketing to get more work or to attract the best graduates who are keen to you know, be part of social justice. So that's quite powerful to them as well. Um, and I, I mean, I think there's a, a very strong case that we need to clean up how we use the word. Uh, to, I mean, to an extent, um, Te Ara Ture, the new um, yes. pro bono clearinghouse, is, yeah. is helping to address some of this because they're acting as a, a way to make sure that the cases that people are taking are actually pro bono because they're, they're checking them first and verifying <laughs> them basically. Yeah, and, and that has been such a great initiative. And one of the things mm. that I really appreciate with them from a professional and a personal perspective is that they actually take the time and effort to thank people. Um, uh, and it's great that they do that because um, often when you're doing legal aid uh, or true pro bono work, um, other than the clients, you, you don't really get a lot of thanks. Um, and in fact, sometimes you actually get um, uh, uh, resistance um, from the, the people who you would think would be um, supporting, um, and in particular, um, uh, and I won't get into too much criticism, like the court system isn't really well set up for dealing mm. with pro bono and legal aid clients. Um, uh, I mean, I'll just kind of jump, and I know I'm crossing areas here, 
and that is the rules committee, as, as you know, you'll have, you'll have dived into it. I mean, you've been cited enough in it with their uh, report on improving access to justice. One of the things that doesn't appear in the report, and, and it and, and it's with all respect to to the authors um, uh, because they've done a great job, but they seem to have missed the point that of what the purpose of the rules really are. And for me, the purpose of the rules, um, and there's lots of them, and you really do need to be uh, really quite switched on to navigate your way around them, okay? Um, it's not for everyone. Um, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and occasionally I'll come across a rule I didn't realise existed, but it's, it's you know, maybe it's the great thing about the law is being curious and finding things. But anyway, getting back to my point is that the rules exist, in my mind, to um, promote uh, and encourage accuracy of judgment writing. So they're there so that you know, when you talk about just outcomes, justice doesn't necessarily equate to the right legal outcome. Uh, they're, they're, they're different concepts. Okay? And the reason why I say that is because for many people, I'm not saying everyone, for many people, they just need an outcome. It doesn't need to be legally correct because the outcome gives them the ability to move on with their life. What they don't want to do is die by a thousand cuts in the procedural process to get that outcome. But the rules, which are written by judges, the rules committee is, uh, you know, I mean, the attorney general's a member, but you know, I don't know if he attends all the meetings. Um, I don't read all the, all, the, all the minutes of the meetings. But the, the rules committee is populated by senior judges whose role are to write judgments. And they want to write judgments that, from their perspective, are accurate and possibly not going to get overturned on appeal. So they want all of the steps to be taken so that they can produce a product, usually in writing, because we don't get we don't have an oral tradition anymore. Um, we haven't for a long time. It's a shame. I mean, I, I it's only happened in my career a few times where a judge has said, "I'm now going to give an oral decision," and and we need more of that. We literally do need more of that because that's what clients want. They don't want to wait 13 months after an expensive trial to then get a. 47-page document, which they're not happy with, the other party's not happy with either. Um, uh, yeah, maybe again I'm missing my point. But the rules are there in my mind to help judges produce accurate outcomes. They're not there to encourage access to justice, um, and they are a barrier to it. And it's uh, and, Well, not they. There are rules which can be abused, and act as a barrier. And the time and the process, justice delay, justice denied, all of those factors factor into it. <laughs> Is there a question there, though? No, no, it's more like a <laughs> statement, but I don't know. I mean, what, you know, what, what, what do you see the rules existing for? What's their purpose? Well, I mean, I guess one of one of the, the issues that um, I sort of had with this review that the Rules Committee did from the outset was that they were they were attempting to go broad and to help access to justice because they really care about it. The people on the mm. Rules Committee do care about it. But I'm they not have, saying they don't. No, 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 no not at all. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. suggesting you don't, yeah. but they do care, and so they want to kind of help fix it. But they actually have quite a limited tool set available to mm. them because they have just the rules. 
and they have the rules for the core part of the formal justice system, which is premised around a rule of law conception about delivering accurate, substantively accurate judgments. And so therefore the rules are, are tilted towards that. Um, I guess the the change that they're trying to introduce in the High Court is towards proportionality. Yeah. So that you're not throwing everything at a case in pursuit of the correct outcome, but you're trying to streamline it down. And so what they're trying to do is to balance um, writing accurate judgments in the, in the sense of getting all the um, facts before the court and being able to reach a substantively accurate outcome uh, against, you know, just litigating the thing to death. Can and I just say, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, but Bridget, no. can I stop you? When you say a substantively correct outcome, okay, isn't this herein lies part of the problem with the whole design of the rules? is that it's so focused on that outcome. But in civil litigation, the large majority, and if, and if it's reflective of my practice, it's, no, it's 95% of civil disputes that are filed don't result in a judgment. They're settled. Okay, So why would you design a system that's focused on producing judgments when only 5% of them in a civil system actually produce judgments? Why wouldn't you design a system that's focused on assisting the parties to reach a resolution that they can live with? Um, well, I mean, I think that they are, well, so a resolution that people can live with is not necessarily a resolution which is correct according to law, right? And so then you get into that very um, central question, which we sort of talked about at the outset about what is access to justice is about whether it's any outcome or an an outcome in accordance with law. Well, but but does it matter? Like if you've got two companies that are fighting over money, does it really matter that a settlement's reached that might not accord with the exact legal entitlements? But both parties are happy with that as an outcome. Well, an argument would be that, yes, that is problematic if, for example, in in um, reaching that, they traded off something which was damaging to the environment or was against some regulation or um, harmed the legal system in some other way. And I guess, you know, one of the things with anything that's a mediated agreement is always about um, the, the relationship of power between the parties and to what extent someone has been um, encouraged or persuaded to let go of their legal right in, um, in just just to get a resolution. And they might be happy with that or they might not be. Maybe that should have gone through and been adjudicated and a resolution should have been found that accorded with their legal rights. Yeah, I mean, oh, well, I guess that's why I chose. I said I said two companies just arguing about money, keeping it really yeah. quite simple, not not bringing in any of those particular yeah. points, which you know resulted in a, in an outcome that, if it was litigated, may have been different. But the parties, for their commercial reasons, because they exist for commercial purposes, ha- have reached a, a, a resolution, because that that ultimately is often. Um, uh, what takes place um, in civil litigation? I guess the, yeah. I mean, the response to that would be that the rules certainly don't 
stop that from happening. And in fact, as you said, most of the cases, that is how they resolve. They go to a mediation and the build up to litigation and they resolve their disputes in a way which may not accord with law. Yeah. But at least you have the the background of the legal system sitting there and its purpose is to, you know, that's its, its part in our constitution is to make judgments in accord with the rule of law, then the rules committee shouldn't, you know, that's it's, that's what it's there for. Yeah, but with, with civil litigation, it, it isn't the court producing a judgment, just the backstop or the safety net or the punishment for one or both of the parties being unreasonable um, uh, in their approach. It, it Ultimately, um, the, the system is there and as the shadow in the background of a negotiation, that you know that if you can't conclude an agreement, there is a system that's in place that's going to give you an agreement, um, which, it, it, again... You might not be happy with it. The other side also may not be happy with it, but at least it's a, a resolution. Um, isn't that really the benefit of our civil litigation system is, is that it, it, it exists as a backstop? Yeah, I mean, well, that's the, the, the idea of bargaining in the shadow of the law that you're mm. referring to is, um, you know, dates back to the 70s and to the mm. idea that that's what the courts are there for. And uh, most of how our rules are written are very much around um, adjudication as a last resort. Yeah. But I guess then the adjudication that you have set up there needs to be in accordance with law, not with Absolutely. what the parties litigate yeah. between themselves, work out between themselves. And, and this is where the parties will then rely on a judge producing an accurate judgment. And of course, we've got an appeal system because first instance judges don't always get it right. And the proof of that is that we do have appeal courts that will correct them. Um, mm. and, and, and we don't just have one layer. You know, we've got uh, multiple layers. Um, now, look, one of the, and I, and I don't want to, because we're going to run out of, this is a great conversation, by the way. I'm really enjoying yeah. this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, we, we are, we, and, and, I, and I know we're going to run out of time. Um, so we're not going to yeah. be able to dive into the, the 23 recommendations of uh, uh, for changes that the Rules Committee have come up with to improve access to justice. But but one of the things that, that did occur, and it comes through this issue of proportionality, and maybe the question of whether the High Court rules is really um, uh, should be transposed as a complete blueprint to the District Court rules when you're dealing with um, proportionally different types, you know, sized claims, and then flowing on to that is a suggestion that perhaps disputes tribunal referees, let's call them adjudicators, give them a, a decent name, could come in to help mediate dispute tribe uh, sorry district court claims um, rather than the judicial settlement conference where you you have a, a, a judge coming in to try and assist it takes that judge away from focus on on, on capacity issues these all seem to, to me to be very good recommendations because again uh, and I think a large part of this is lost, is that so much of civil litigation is focused on assisting the parties to resolve matters by agreement. Mm. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, when I read that report and my interactions with the Rules Committee and the, the people who are on the Rules Committee is that they are very focused on assisting parties to reach a decision and they know that that's how almost all of the cases in our system are actually resolved. So 
um, yeah, those uh, um, there's been problems with judicial settlement conferences and having you know the questionable role of judges taking a mediation role when they're not um, experts or comfortable in that role, and whether there's capacity in the disputes tribunal to do that. Um, my recollection is that they have not gone forward with that recommendation at the moment, but it's mm. something that they're considering for the future. Well, I think we need a bit yeah. more evidence about about it. Mm, yeah. Sorry. Well, well, no, no, but look, you, you're right. I mean, not all judges, and this is just my experience, I'm not going to name anyone, not all judges um, are inherently great mediators. Now, there are some that are, and there are there are some retired judges who have gone on to, to, to prove themselves time and time again of being exceptionally good mediators. Um, but it is a, it is a skill set, uh, it is a talent uh, that needs to be worked on or and developed, um, and you know training can go so far. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, th- there shouldn't be judges who that's not their skill set um, that end up losing a-, a day where there isn't a lot of value added to it. Uh, and also, questionably, you know, as a as a judge at, at the at the cost of society, the best person to be delivering a sort of a, a mediated or facilitating a mediated outcome. Um, you know, these are obviously questions for others to resolve. But in my experience, um, I don't think the answer is yes. Um, there are some judges that are very good, don't get me wrong, but um, are they the best people to be delivering that process? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is a, there's a, um, this isn't particularly in my area, but I've got colleagues, um, particularly in Australia, who have done lots of work around, you know, the idea of um, court um, court based mediation and mm. what role people should take. So there is a good literature out there thinking about these issues. And of course, the Rules Committee can have access to that kind of information as well to help guide them. But there are some interesting tricky issues there. Oh, look, look, there are. And I mean, I think increasing the disputes tribunal jurisdiction is a, is a sound move. There's always going to be disadvantages because for increasing the amount means that there's more at stake for people. And if things don't go their way uh, and there is an unfair outcome, um, perhaps even a, you know, a procedurally unfair outcome, putting aside the right to appeal, um, the, the consequences can be um, quite... Um, yeah, quite horrific for some people. Hey, can I just ask you a little bit more about some of your specific research? Um, I just want to jump you back to 2018. I, I know it's going back a few years ago. The New Zealand yeah. Legal Services Mapping Project. Okay. Mm. What, what, I mean, what were the problems with, with the legal aid framework that you found that came came out of that? Yeah, well, so that was, I mean, that's going back a wee way now, mm. and that was sort of trying to surface these issues around um, the fact that legal aid lawyers were difficult to find and mm. completely non-existent in some parts of New Zealand. So we were trying to look to see where free services were that people could access. And it sort of came out of my um, thesis research where when I was, you know, working with um looking at what litigants in person were doing and they'd go to court and the judge would say, oh, you should go and get advice. You need to go and get advice. And I'd be thinking, well, where are these people going to get advice? There is no advice available to them. Mm. So it was really thinking, um, well, where is this advice um, in New Zealand and where are the missing gaps? And it was sort of the beginning of um, the research program that I've been working on subsequently as well. Okay, and then uh, now that subsequent research was this the New Zealand Lawyers Pro Bono and Access to Justice um, uh, paper that you produced in twenty twenty? 
um yeah well yeah. there's been there's been lots of different research yeah. projects but yeah the pro yeah. bono one was part of that yeah. um that program so we were looking at both pro bono work and what lawyers were doing in the way of pro bono yes. uh and also lawyers discounting practices or doing you know kind of cheaper services and things like that okay um and hey look before we finish up i also wanted to talk to you about your teaching um now i just i, I noticed yeah. that you, you're teaching legal system so this is for you know uh, first year law students at Otago, is that right? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then you've got a paper as well, which I was intrigued about, and I'll explain the reason why. Called lawyers, clients, and the profession. Um, um, I had a bit of a look online about it, and and what it seemed to me is you, you're possibly um, delivering, and possibly the only person in Australasia that's delivering um, a paper. Uh, for law students, it's actually focused on the, the the practicalities of being a lawyer. And, and the reason why I say that is that there's been a number of you know senior academics and a couple of deans of the Australian Law School that have, have said we need to modernise our legal education because we're not preparing students, uh, graduates, for actually practising as lawyers. Um, and it seemed that it was was that part of the rationale of the development of that paper. Yeah, well, that paper is really, um, I mean, I guess the sort of subtitle of that paper to me is stuff I wish I'd been taught before I left (laughs) (laughs) and entered the profession. Um, So I look at the legal profession through the kind of uh, sociology lens. So thinking about the structure of the profession, um, I I came from a a non-lawyer family. And so when I went to law school, I just didn't really understand what... um, how the legal profession was made up. And I remember going to interviews, you know, with the big downtown firms mm. and they'd say, well, what kind of area of law do you want to be in? And I, I had no idea because I didn't know what, you know, a commercial team was or a, a mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> like I just had no concept of how the profession's structured. The different, you know, we talk yeah. about lawyers, but there's the criminal defence bar and there's um, people who specialise in, you know, being lawyer for child or um, working in-house house and things so it's sort of trying to open the box a bit for students to think about what is the legal profession how did it come to be and how can we remake it in the future to deliver for clients and what do clients want so it's kind of um it's directed at senior students who have preferably already clerked or you know gone and done something so they've had a bit of a view of the law of the legal profession and um just getting them to engage with um, those kind of questions. And I also do quite a lot of introducing stories from research about client perspectives and getting them to think about clients and what clients want, um, how mm. clients perceive lawyers and how we could um, make sure that our practice meets their needs. And we do a lot on listening uh, as a key lawyering skill. It's a, it's a great, in fact, it's a great human skill listening. Yes, yeah. it is. Ask it more is. questions. You know, that's yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Bridget, I mean, that sounds like a, a fantastic course. And I, I say that really sincerely in so many ways, because I mean, we don't want our law students making, you know, what for them are quite serious career decisions based on their perception that they gain out of watching episodes of Suits, Alec McBeal, um, Rake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, well, actually, of, 
funny yeah. you say that because the last class I teach is I play an episode of The Good Wife and then we, we deconstruct <laughs> it with right. our knowledge that we've got from the course. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> do directly engage with pieces from those programs to be like, this is not real life. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a problem. That's what people come in thinking they're yeah. getting into. I mean, there's, there's probably even possibly a deeper problem, um, not only just at the, the level to which law schools are, you know, um, providing... Uh, knowledge, um, valuable knowledge to, to students and graduates as they then move on into the profession. But at, at a wider level, um, and, and what I'm saying is in terms of generally uh, how do citizens learn about our legal system and what it mm. means to participate in it. I mean, it's uh, I understand there are some high schools that may teach legal studies. I mean, I don't know to the extent of what that's involved, but... Um, you know, to 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 be able to participate as a citizen and and this this whole suggestion of sixteen year olds being able to vote, <laughs> Supreme Court have looked at. Um, you you know, is there a role for uh, education to better inform and demystify our court processes, um, not just to law students, but actually to make it more available to uh, just members of our community and society generally. Yeah, I mean, it's a suggestion that comes up a lot and there might be something to it, although I do feel for schools who are expected to, you know, deliver so much across so many kind of domains. Um, Maybe what we need is a really realistic legal drama (laughs) that delivers a more realistic view of how our courts actually work featuring people having problems parking and um <laughs> those yeah, sorts of the practical things. issues yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't know I think it's it's you know it's complicated and our citizens have to understand so much about so many complex things mm. I, I mean um yes I wish people kind of knew more but I think we have to be careful about the demands that we place on on our school teachers and also on our people of how, you know, we've created such a complex society and then, you know, requiring all these different domains of knowledge about um, different aspects. But, yeah, there's certainly a place for somehow educating our population a bit more about what the role of courts actually are. Um, mm. But it's, you know, it's hard to do. But I know that there are a number of people in the profession who are interested in that question. Yeah, no, look, look, absolutely. And I, and I also do know that at a university level, because law plays quite a, a, a significant part into the regulation of relationships, etc. cetera, um, when I was at Otago, uh, I was fortunate enough to be employed in the accountancy department, um, which provided a, you know, a, a legal course within the department because they felt accountants, accounting students needed to know basic commercial law. Um, yeah. And you know, and and of course, uh, of course they do. Um, it's a, it's an important point for them. Uh, look, Bridget, thank you so much for joining me. We, we've covered a massive <laughs> amount. Okay, it's been today. a wild ride, Chris. Yeah. It has been a wild ride. Um, and the, and and every topic we've covered could be a podcast in itself. Um, there's so much there to to deep to dive into. Um, I want to thank you for joining me, but I also want to thank you for the work you've done and the work that you're doing, which is incredibly important at um, uh, shining light um, on uh, what is a significant challenge um, to be able to solve the access to justice problem uh, and also just what the problem actually is. Um, It's really important. You're doing amazing work. You're an inspiration. um, And I just wanted to thank you. 
Oh, thank you. That's very kind words. But I'd also like to thank you for um, your dedication to this area and to all those other legal professionals and people who are out there who work hard to do this. It's a it's such a complicated um, area and it yep. needs so many people working in collaboration to do it. So I think what you're doing is really important and um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N dot C-O dot N-Z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under. <laughs>